Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the History of Religion podcast. I am J.A. Graham, and we are on episode 32 of the History of Christianity series titled Christendom. Last week, the episode was focused on laying the foundations of Christendom. I use the term Christendom because I think that it is in the Middle Ages that the true sense of it comes into being. The first usage of the term actually is in the 9th century in England, but the idea of it is an area where Christianity is dominant both in practice and influence. Many would argue that Rome was Christendom as well, and that is a pretty strong argument. I hesitate to call it that because Christendom seems to imply that there is an overarching glue to many otherwise differing groups that allow different groups to all be in what is called Christendom. It is with this understanding that the rise of the European feudal states in the Middle Ages provides such an ideal context for the term to have what I believe to be the most common understanding of it in modern times. So with that, now we turn to Christendom in the Middle Ages. The most important European kingdom that was emerging was that of the Franks. We saw how they had converted to Christianity under Clovis in 496. His conversion of the kingdom was followed by Christians using their newfound freedom to begin to convert pagans and Arians in the kingdom. There were three main Christians who gained prominence. One was Martin of Tours, who we have mentioned, but the other two did work in the 6th century that was important as well. One was Dionysus, which later became the name Dennis. He became the bishop of Clovis's new capital of Lutetia, which later turned into the modern city of Paris. Dennis established a strong bishop position in the kingdom that would last for centuries. His legacy was really solidified by a woman named Genoveffa, who became a major influence on Clovis herself. Both of these Christians helped to solidify the new Frank kingdom into its new religion. Toward the east, the position of Pope was in contention with Constantinople during the times of Justinian because of the theological differences, but Justinian had the power and enforced the east's version of Christianity upon the western bishops. Even when Gregory the Great became the Pope, he wrote a letter to Constantinople to try to get out of becoming Pope. It was customary up until then for the bishops to write letters to Constantinople in order to gain favor to fill an important see position. However, after Justinian, things fell apart, and Gregory made the position of Pope one of the most powerful positions in Europe, and somewhat independent of Constantinople. So at the end of the 6th century, the Pope was prepared to take on the world. The Pope was winning against the Arians and the Pagans. The Barbarians were slowly but surely all converting to Catholic Christianity, and the nearest authority was now the Pope in Rome. In the East, the now Byzantium Empire was struggling after Justinian. He was the last great hope for the empire to reclaim all that it had lost. Plagues began to ravage the land, and wars were lost. By the end of the 6th century, Byzantium was weak and struggling to find its new identity without the West. However, it did look like it was about ready to get back up on its feet, but all of that was about to change. All of this leads us into the 7th century, where the world changed dramatically. In the deserts of the Arabian Peninsula came a man named Muhammad. He was born around 570 in the city of Mecca, according to Islamic sources. Now, before we get too deep into the New World Power, it is important to preface it with this. This will just be a general overview, and we will not get into any critical scholarship, such as the likelihood that Muhammad did not reside in Mecca, and perhaps Muhammad was not even a person who the modern Islamic sources tell us that he is. All of those discussions will be saved for the series on Islam, which will be forthcoming. So for now, we will focus on just the general religion and what pertains specifically to Christianity. So something that pertains to Christianity right out of the gate is the area of the world that Muhammad lived, out in the deserts of Arabia. It has been mentioned that oftentimes, those who were condemned in councils or called heretics had to flee from the main cities and towns, out into the hinterlands, where they could practice their form of Christianity freely. 
Furthermore, monks and ascetics went out into the deserts to escape society in North Africa and in the areas like Palestine. Muhammad was in this environment in Arabia. Now, the Islamic sources claim that Mecca was a huge hub for trade at the time, but there is no historical or archaeological evidence for the existence of Mecca until a few centuries after Muhammad supposedly lived there. So the picture that we are left with is one where Muhammad is living in the desert with exiles and those who are seeking to escape society. While out in the desert, his family were nomadic and lived by trading in caravans, where he was exposed to Jews, Christians, and pagans all living in Arabia, which was really like the Wild West at the time. He married an older lady who had money and then gave him time to do things like pray, which he did one day in a cave where he received a revelation from the angel Gabriel. This new revelation, Muhammad claimed, was not a new religion, but it was the fulfillment of Judaism and Christianity. The revelation said that there was only one true God who is just and merciful. Though the new religion would not form its theology for centuries to come, the main tenets of Islam for our purposes are summarized in the five pillars of Islam. The first is strict monotheism. This is different from the Christian monotheism because it asserts that the Trinity is not compatible with monotheism. Muhammad seemed to have a misinformed and misunderstanding about Christianity, as is evidenced by Surah 575, where it is noted that Christians worship God, Jesus, and the Mother Mary. Obviously, this is not what Christians believed, but it is what Christians who were heretics believed at the time, and those Christians had been exiled from Christendom, so they fled to places like Arabia to avoid persecution. Even the Gnostics still existed in Arabia. So Islam firstly denied any form of theism that was not strictly monotheistic. The first pillar also includes the idea that Muhammad is the prophet of the monotheistic God. Muhammad claimed to be in the same line as Jewish prophets and even Jesus. Muhammad was the last true prophet and came to correct what Christians had misunderstood. More theologically, later Muslims would argue that Paul had corrupted Christianity and the early Christians had changed what Jesus originally said to make up a new religion. So in reality, Jesus had preached the exact same thing as Muhammad was preaching. So in that way, Muhammad was the last true prophet in a long line of Judeo-Christian prophets, which included people like Moses and Jesus. The second pillar is ritual prayer, which involves facing the Kaaba, but originally in Islam it was facing Jerusalem, which indicated that Islam saw itself as the fulfillment of earlier religions of Judaism and Christianity. The first historical evidence that we even have of Muhammad comes decades after his death in 632, and that evidence is on the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, which is not a mosque, but it is a monument built on top of the old second Jewish temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. So it is a symbolic sign of domination and new world order rising in that part of the world. The Dome of the Rock to this day prevents the Jews from building another temple and reinstating ritual sacrifice. The third pillar is almsgiving, which is the term zakat, something that becomes contextualized into each community and is eventually transformed into a political idea to tax non-Muslims in some areas as second-class citizens, which were often Christians, and this was called the Jizra. The fourth pillar is fasting during Ramadan, so the celebration of a holy day, which is nothing new to the old Abrahamic religions. Finally, the fifth pillar is a pilgrimage to Mecca, or the Hajj, which every adult male must make if they are able to in their lives. This exemplifies the cultural and geographical ties that Islam has, which makes it overall a meta-narrative ideology more collective and similar to Judaism rather than to Christianity. In other words, being Arabic will be an important part of being a Muslim in this new religion. Many Christians did not recognize Islam as a new religion right away. Many thought that it was simply another heresy that had arisen from the deserts and couldn't be more dangerous than Arianism, which was still around among the barbarians. However, this new heresy came with a new call, 
one to arms. Muhammad in his life conquered two cities, set up political mandates as part of the religion, and slowly began to turn on those who he said he came to fulfill, such as his massacre of the Jews in Medina. His kingdom was small at his death, but the combination of political, military, and religious rule made the new position in society he created in Arabia very powerful. These rulers became known as caliphs, or successors of Muhammad. After Muhammad's death in 632, the first caliph was Abu Bakr, who was able to gain power over most of Arabia, as there were different sects and groups of traders who did not want to submit to the Muslims. But by 634, the whole peninsula was now under Muslim control. The next caliph was Umar, and he invaded Syria. Damascus fell in 635 and Jerusalem in 638. Another army went west towards Egypt and took Alexandria in 642. Now, it is important to relay a common mistake heard in the streets of armchair historians. The Library of Alexandria was probably not destroyed by Umar, which was a fake account made up in the 12th century in order to try to keep Christians away from the areas, as the Crusaders liked to plunder libraries, and to show how the Islamic culture was different from that of Christendom, and so they did not accept secular ideas that were found in things like libraries. However, the Library of Alexandria had met its real end in the centuries before the Muslims had even arrived. The library had been set on fire under the rule of Julius Caesar in 48 BC, but a smaller version of it survived and continued on for centuries. But in 391 AD, the Emperor Theodosius I was trying to eliminate paganism from the empire, so he allowed the Bishop of Alexandria to destroy the temples there, and with them the last vestiges of the Great Library, which was contained in one of those temples. The books were lost to history, probably absorbed into the church that was built on the very site of one of the temples that had held the second library after the temple was itself destroyed. Those books were not as valued as Christians, were more concerned with preserving their ideas, and the old pagan books probably slowly faded into history. So it is important to not lay the blame of the destruction of the library on the Muslims who invaded. They did eventually burn books and destroy libraries, but just not this one. The Muslim invaders continued moving west through Africa and began to attack the Persian Empire, which had been weakened by long wars and internal strife for decades. The Muslims had taken all of the Persian Empire by the end of the 650s, yet internal strife was forming in the new empire. Of the first four caliphs, three had been assassinated, and the fourth caliph was named Ali, who was a relative of Muhammad. A sect of followers then began to argue that the caliph had to be from the family of Muhammad. This ties into the idea that the caliph was the spiritual and political leader of the Ummah, or the community of Muslims. So just as in Judaism, there was a familial lineage from David, oftentimes Islam took on the same characteristics. The result was an internal split between what is now called the Shia Muslims, who follow only caliphs who are related to Muhammad, and Sunni, who follow caliphs whether or not they are related to Muhammad, which basically means the strongest leader. This meant that for the new empires, the state was the religion, and the religion was the state. This made it very distinct from other empires and made it capable of forming its own cultural identity. Many of these areas that were invaded were not too happy with their current situations under their old empirical rulers like the Byzantium and Persia. In Egypt, many saw the invaders as an opportunity to change things up, and they were not too hostile to them. The Muslims continued across Africa, and Carthage fell in 695. They crossed the Straits of Gibraltar in 711 and began the invasion of the Visigoth Kingdom in Spain. It was not until 732 that they were stopped in the Battle of Tours by Charles Martel of the Frankish Kingdom. Now, 
All of this has been from the 7th century into the early 8th century. The Muslims have arrived and have conquered all the way to the Frankish kingdom in Europe, taken all of North Africa, pushed the Byzantines out of Syria, and taken the Persian Empire. This has massive consequences for the Christians, and next time we will continue looking at the effects of Islam on Christianity as it rises in the world. So join me then to do just that here on the History of Religion podcast.